0: you're listening to an m pavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in for more visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts
1: We're going to get started in a few moments. I'm going to get some of you towards the back to join us up the front. I know it's a terrible imposition, but let's do it. Let's try something different. Let's get into it. (laughs) While you're doing that and moving forward, I'll just introduce myself. My name is Luna Morjic-Gawler. I'm the curator and moderator for you all for this conversation for this evening. I'm very excited to be joined by this collection of artists. One of who is Zoe. Thank you so much, Zoe, for retrieving the card. So I'll just give you all a minute to settle into your seats. And we're just gonna start slightly differently before we launch into the acknowledgement of the country that we're sitting on. So those of you who are settled, if I can get you to close your eyes for me. The first thing we're gonna do is just I'll invite all the artists as well. Great, thank you, everyone just to take a minute to situate ourselves to really be in place. What we're talking about today is about our relationship to the worlds that we are embedded in and dependent upon as humans in the world. And that extends all the way to this land, this pavilion. As when you're breathing in, thinking about what it is that you can smell, what sounds you can hear around you. And being aware that under your feet are complex organisms and systems running all the way down through the soil and the stone and the clay, the subterranean waters that we drink from our taps, the spaces and microbes and bacteria on who we depend for our food. And acknowledging that this is stolen land belonging to the Eastern Kulin Nations. I'd like to offer my respect, the extended respect of everyone speaking today to the elders of those groups, those who've come before, those still on their way, and recognising that sovereignty has not been ceded. And I'd also like you to consider the ancestry and the places that you're carrying with you into this space as well today, not just through your extended lineage and history, but also the places that inhabit the cotton of the clothing that you're wearing, the botanics and the perfumes or creams on your skin, the rubber in the soles of your shoes, the rare earth minerals that are in your glasses or jewelry And just letting all of those things really contextualise the conversation that we have today. And I'd like to remind everybody that there have been 500 deaths, indigenous deaths in custody since the 1991 Royal Commission. And in order to have these conversations about place, about our responsibility, and about how we move into futures of hope, we are doing that without being naive and understanding that this is the same conversation as that. And speaking ecologically is to be speaking politically. And if this is a theme that you're interested in, you're also bound to be thinking about and speaking to, aligning yourselves with, and being an ally towards First Nations communities, practices, and the protection of those knowledges. The ethics of that is something that we'll dive into a little bit later as we are speaking as non-Indigenous artists today. If you'd like to open your eyes and come back into the space. So I'm a transdisciplinary artist working in non-human spaces. I'm particularly interested in participatory work, the making of worlds, and particularly pertinent to this facilitating conversations where we can speak about the practices that are going on at the moment in working with worlds beyond the human, which is something that's really come to the forefront in COVID, but of course has always been present in First Nations practices around the world. And also has been something that's been being explored inside of environmental and ecological art in more recent years as well. And everyone uh, sitting around me here has got a different practice, but every one of those practices has a piece of participatory or relational or socially engaged aspects. Um, And I'll introduce them now. (laughs) So going around the circle, everyone will just have to bear with me while I do little card shuffles because... I'm a human, <laughs> a fallible, fallible human. What a wonderful thing to be. Actually, I'm gonna start with Zoe. Zoe's at the front. Did everyone like that little reveal of the card then? Close enough. Okay, um, so Zoe Scoglio lives on unceded Dja country in central Victoria and works across performance, video, sound and text in participatory, collaborative and site responsive ways. Often returning to the relationship between the human and the geological, Zoe's projects have taken the form of guided works, cere- guided walks, ceremonial encounters, public choreographies and installations, all in which are in response to this planetary derangement of the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene. Welcome Zoe. What an exciting thing. <laughs> Anna is next. Anna Takia is sitting here on the end. So, Anna creates spaces to embody diverse futures using performance and participatory art, futures research, and strategy. Anna produces and curates exhibitions, installations, and immersive performances to future inclusively with other humans, creatures and things. She's the founder and director of All Tomorrow's Futures, a cultural and strategic consultancy that helps clients develop artistic interventions and contribute to more equitable and just futures. Welcome, Marla. I'm gonna say welcome at the end of everyone. I like the rhythm. Over here we have Lycan. Hi, Lycan. <laughs> so Lycan helps practice encompasses performance, photography, sculpture, musical collaboration and curating. Uh, artist residencies and group shows. Much of her work is situated in the aquatic realm, including liquid landscapes, dripping ice sculptures, and experimental imbibable fluids. She's the founder of the Forum of Sensory Motion, the Mobile Lab, the Seaweed Appreciation Society, and the School of Untourism. Welcome, Lycan. (laughs) And on the end, Luke George. So, Luke creates new choreographic and visual work that explores new intimacies and connections between artists and audiences. This practice is informed by queer politics, whereby people are neither singular nor isolated, and bodies of difference can intersect, practice mutual listening, and take responsibility for themselves and one another. So, Luke's most recent work is Hundreds and Thousands, which positioned audiences and plants as collaborators, engaging plants in their ways of knowing to rearrange the sensory and the sensible. And we're gonna rove our way through a range of different themes, speaking about the lithic, geologic, the more than human, the aquatic, the botanic, and thinking about what it is that those spaces have taught us and offer when we're thinking about where we are at the moment in the context of COVID and the changes that we're needing to make as we come to more broadly recognise the consequence of extractive cultures. And inside of that, while Luke does up his jacket, I'm going to ask him the first question. Surprise, it's now. (laughs) I better get ready. Um, I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit first to the hundreds and thousands project. which I had the benefit of, of doing part of in lockdown um, and forming a close relationship with a fern in my room, which I was very pleased to do. <laughs> um, and then on the back of that, I'm wondering, what's one thing that you've learnt from a non-human teacher this year through your work?
2: Um, okay. Um, hello, everyone. It's, it's quite, I, I want to acknowledge, it's quite startling to be, um, doing, I'm so used to like doing this in a Zoom setting, you know, which has become weirdly safe, um, and and yeah, it feels like a lot. Um, so I just wanted to say that um, thanks for being here. Um, so the Hundreds and Thousands Project is a collaboration between a Singapore-based artist Daniel Koch, and myself um, and uh, many people and many plants. Um, we it comes off the back of uh, another project that Daniel and I made together, where we were working with um, with rope bondage uh, as a material to explore uh, the, the space of consent and um, uh, the tensions between a, a community of people, say, an audience and an artist in a in a performing setting, and in that experience. Um, we dived really into like the relationship between the person being tied and the person tying, um, but we found we were quite distant from what it means to to watch um, or to see, and that we were um, we were missing this other perspective. Um, and so we really dived into this notion of how can we how can we um, step outside of ourselves? How can we like um, think beyond ourselves or feel beyond ourselves to the gaze or the experience of another. Um, And we were really exploring that for a long time. And somehow, um, I I think I remember coming into the studio one day and just being like, I can't deal with people anymore. Like, I I, I don't understand how to be with people anymore. the only people I can, the only things I can relate to, are the plants that I surround myself with, and the the the, the vegetal friends that I and companions that I have in my life, and that they, that I, I go into, I leave my um, home to go and be with. And so we decided to um, invite um, what it means to be in collaboration with plants or as a proposal, and if that can, if we can do that in an artistic process. But from like, what does it mean? for us as artists to, um, to cisgendered male artists, queer artists, um, to decenter ourselves um, and for the artistic space to be somewhere between us and and the plants or us and other. Um, and then we can began inviting more and more plants into the process. We started traveling. This is when we could travel. Um, we traveled to lots of places um, and invited people and plants to come into that to that process, and the creative team grew. Um, and then this year, uh, we decided to shift the project quite radically um, to being completely online, where no one would travel, no one could travel, um, and invite a large uh, participation from people living. Um, primarily in Sydney or around Sydney in the region, um, around Perth in the region and also around Hong Kong as well, but also many places in between um, to come into a digital or an online engagement with each other about um, how they coexist with plants in their life and what, um, what does it mean to collaborate with a plant in this moment in time? Um, to create something with, by or for a plant to be, to be, um, and I'm going to answer the second part of your question: to be, to be watched by a plant, to be sensed by a plant, and what does that do to you? And that, like for me, this is last, I live by myself, and um, the fifty vegetal friends that I have and companions that I have, and this time like they're in pots, right? They're, they're, they're domesticated things. And it made me kind of realise I'm a domesticated thing, you know, living in my little apartment, look, gazing out into the world as I couldn't leave it. And so it made me sort of think about, okay, they, they, they were teaching me about how to, how to stay in place. But in that staying in place... Um, that I could be connected to them and that they could be connected to me or that we could also be connected to all the material things in the space like a toothbrush or um, uh, the water coming out of the tap or um, the food decaying in the fridge or uh, the vacuum cleaner or the dust in the air and how these kind of um, intertextual or um, intermaterial relationships were happening between us. And we were kind of coexisting and together. But then also, I'm gonna shut up in a minute. Um, No, I'm gonna ask you another question. (laughs) Oh no, Um, but like how staying in place, like a plant, um, I'm also connected vastly beyond that place at the same time um, through a networked community. And and however I experience that through the internet, but also through the um, uh, ancestral um, uh, connections and through the familial connections and through the chosen family connections, um, through the art network, the queer network, you know, and it just goes on and on and on. And then, you you know, this uh, hundreds and thousands is really, uh, we are asking ourselves, like, how do we experience this interconnectedness that, pops up in so many different conversations or so many different um, uh, yeah, conversations in the world.
1: I've got to say it was a beautiful thing to be in a Zoom room where every person was accompanied by a plant and to hear an introduction to the plant as well as the person. Very democratic and lovely. My, uh, My question inside of that is as you started to shift your attention towards the agencies of the plants in your space, and I guess they're different attributes and and characteristics, has that then shifted your understanding of where agencies are outside of, I guess, just the botanic? Or maybe even just not outside of the botanic, actually, just outside of your space. I'm just wondering about the ripple effect of that sort of awareness.
2: Yeah, you know, consent is a really interesting word in this space, and and consent is a word that I encounter very, very often um, in... Uh, in my life, in my practices, my various practices, and the people that I encounter, and um, when a when a when a being has um, or an entity has bodily autonomy or has a voice, um, you know that I can understand initially, like immediately, you know, we're kind of immediately practicing consent with each other. So in this situation, like. Did you know, I I don't know the answer to these things, they're just more and more questions. But like I, I'm there and going, okay, did you consent to be in this pot? And like, did you want this? Okay, maybe maybe we didn't choose to either of us didn't choose to be in this situation, but how can I what do I need to do to listen? Like when I practice rope bondage, right? It's an experience of empathy. It's an experience of care. Um about how can we be together in this moment, in this intensified situation, in this role play. And, um, and so I'm wondering how can I like borrow from that uh, situation into this, where there's an empathy between things.
1: I think that's something that comes up in everyone's practice working in these spaces. How do you, how do you listen and also acknowledge response or look for levels of consent? Zoe, I'm, I'm interested in the work that you've done where you've worked with geologic forms and, and landscapes. How do you start to approach that deep listening or, yeah, I guess the lines of consent and response and agency?
0: Yeah. Um, I think a lot of my work ongoingly, even though it's been shifting a lot in the last few years, um, always comes back to myself and my body and thinking in a somatic way. Uh, way, which when I say somatics, it's very much about sensing from within, Um, and that can also be aligned with dialogues around deep listening um, and different sorts of sensory um, awareness and attention and self-reflexivity. So for a long time, around 10 years, I think all the different various politics and ideas were grounded in the geological, Um, but for me, it was very much about a a way of grounding myself within a greater narrative or understanding um, this idea of humanism or of the human in a Western context, which very much separates the human from the greater ecology and a greater temporality um, and materiality. Um, yeah, trying to trouble that by thinking around uh, my own sense of identity in relationship to these vast, sort of, you know, quite incomprehensible time frames, that is deep time and... Uh, thinking about my own sense of uh, as a life force, as a being, as part of an interconnected story from like thinking about abiogenesis and the first moments of sort of life. Um, But however, I'm really aware as well, I I stopped making work in a particular way and went to study and do a master's over um, in the Netherlands in 2017. And there were many reasons for that, but one of those reasons was a real awareness that I couldn't be talking about as a non-Indigenous artist working and living here. I couldn't just sort of skip the politics of the present and the fact that I was on unceded lands and jump to this sort of more abstract, universal, geological, planetary space, which, you know, I think it's still very important, like holding those contradictions and those awarenesses of a sort of um, planetary as well as very localized um, awareness and situated awareness and um, responsibilities. So for me, um, yeah, I don't frame my practice so much around the geological anymore, but um, this sort of ecological thinking that's embedded within that, um, where you think of oneself relationally. And again, yeah, I've been thinking a lot more about the, um, this, as you said before, it's extremely political, like understanding capitalist and colonial um, world-making practices haven't just shaped the shape of the world but our own imaginaries and as someone who's been enculturated in this western framework in the dominant culture here in Australia and the white culture um, yeah really reflecting on yeah what sort of logics I reproduce also around my own sense of self and subjectivity and um, different ways to break that down or problematise that with others and um, yeah, looking at the ecological and geological in relation to the political as well.
1: I think it's um, part of the challenge of, of doing this work is that both those things have to be held at the same time um, and obviously when we're working in spaces of the imaginary particularly with worlds beyond the human, uh, there is so, uh, so much to be gleaned and learnt from, from paying attention but at the same time when we're tethered back into this material realm we do have to, yeah, like you say, really grapple with the, the tensions of, of the present. Mm. Um, I think you really hit um, on you know, something when you were speaking about the imaginary, which I think is really part of the value of this work as it's a departure point, provided we do come back to the, <laughs> the grounded truth of the moment. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, and in, in your work, um, which is so based in, I guess, um, the intertidal zones and the places in some way of, of departure have you found that as a particularly valuable and evocative site for engaging people in imaginary worlds as well as ecology itself in a more sort of scientific framing?
3: Yeah, I think so. Um, I know the ocean is very rich space in, in the imagination of Australians um, and I see the Seaweed Appreciation Society, one of its roles is to kind of provide a new way to engage with that space in a way that people are really kind of seeking. Um, it's, you know, they say that 80% of the ocean has been undiscovered and I guess I would kind of like it to remain that way and fill that, that you know, unknown space with, um, yeah, imagination rather than submarines and technology and... Um, yeah, sorry, I don't know if I'm answering the question. Possibility well. space for possibility. No, you are. Yeah.
1: There's, no, there's no wrong answers in a <laughs> panel discussion. That's the brilliance of
3: it. <laughs> um, and there's definitely been a lot of sort of uptake of of what the Seaweed Appreciation Society is doing. And I think, yeah, it's it's definitely a rich space. People are looking for ways to, um, you know, discuss kind of hope and regenerate regenerative kind of possibilities. And there's Um, space for that with seaweed because even though it's vulnerable Mm. um, and, you know, a large part of the giant kelp forests in the Southern Ocean have disappeared in the last few decades, it also regrows really quickly. So um, even though it's a complex kind of thing to suggest that humans um, get back involved in... um, in rehabilitation, which is always a tricky kind of proposition, but I think it's kind of necessary at this point. And it's been shown that with, um, like, culling of sea urchins and planting of um, seaweed, not for seaweed farming so much, but for um, regeneration, that it works. And it works really quickly because seaweed can grow at, like, half a metre a day, many of these species. Wow, that's so fast. Yeah. That's fantastic. So within, like, three months, there's sort of patches that were sea urchin barrens that they've rehabilitated in different parts of the world. I think you've touched on something which is true of, of
1: everyone um, here's practice, which is that um, whilst all of these things are working in the spaces of art, they are really engaged socially with actual change and shifts in perspective um, that are going on. And thinking about the ocean in that way, of um, it, it just it made me think about these ideas of departure into, you know, space as the frontier Thinking about oceans is also undiscovered and yeah. beautiful. <laughs> returning, returning to this place, yeah, <laughs> sort of spaces. And it just um, it made me think about um, your work, Anna, actually, in the spaces of futures. While we're talking about points of departure and um, looking towards possibilities, uh, and I'm wondering about um, multi-species thinking and the way that it's figured in your futuring work. Um, could you speak to that for a little bit for me? Absolutely. <laughs>
4: I a little concerned about what you were going to ask me just then. (laughs) So enjoying listening to everyone else's responses. Um, So my background is I originally um, went to art school and trained as an artist and then had a a, a long practice, which has continued as a a cultural creative producer. And um, a handful of years ago, I had the opportunity to study a master's, which I studied uh, and I was drawn to study a master's in foresight and future studies. Um, purely because I'd had the good luck of uh, being able to work alongside some really brilliant professional futurists. Prior to that, I had no idea that you could become a professional futurist. Seemed very kind of far-fetched and futuristic. (laughs) Anyhow, um, what really excited me about formally studying foresight and future studies was that it really works with the space of possibility. And what's always drawn me to working in in future studies and, and keeps me working there is the constant uh, the constant questioning of where our spaces of possibility are located or could be located within future studies as well there are a number of um, thinkers and, and academics who have also talked really articulately about the colonization of futures and, and have spoken to it from from uh, post-colonial or decolonial lenses so who have addressed the fact that the future like many other um, locations is also space a space that, Uh, is subject to colonisation, it's subject to um, capture by dominant narratives and paradigms and what I think is really interesting about the future, whether we consider it to be a concept or a construct that exists out there and then or whether we see it as something that exists in here and now or a combination of the two, is really the idea that the future is... um, ..that... that, uh, that, um, our, our sort of our understanding of what the future is in the present can either constrain or expand our possibilities of what we uh, what we think possible for any given future. So it's one of those truisms, but I think it's really fascinating to keep working with. And I think de- developing criticality around the way that we think about the future is something that I always am drawn to and and aspire to do through work. Um, Coming back to sort of artistic practice and, and the multi-species futures uh, question that you're asking, Luna, um, it was really through um, in- engagement with futures and foresight field that I was actually drawn drawn back into an arts practice. I think if you're working with ideas of possibility, imagination, imaginaries, and thinking of the future as an imaginary, which is probably one of the ways that I like to work with the future, um, to me, it sort of seemed almost uh, obvious in some ways that artistic practice, um, that anything that can uh, ask questions about possibility, that can be playful, that can be subversive, um, that can upend dominant paradigms or at least question them or play at the edges um, is is not only of, of value, but is, is really important to have in conversation with um, some of the more, you could say, traditional outputs from a foresight or futures practice, which often is strategy or forecasting or um, future, not predictions necessarily, but maybe sort of workshopping in corporate and governmental spaces. Um, so for me, I've been really interested in, I think for me, one of the things that is really interesting around the multi-species conversation and futures is with so many of us, um, and I feel like I'm in such great com- company here with this panel, you know, addressing things such as the Anthropocene and the, Cap- and the Capitalocene The great derangement, the trying to address ways in which we are uh, relational or interdependent in perhaps in dominant uh, thought systems or structures that may deny that relationality. And here as well, I really want to thank you for that acknowledgement of country as well because when we're thinking about coloniality and colonialism here, it's also the denying of relationships, not just between First Nations people and land, but also between the possibility of relationships between humans and, and all earth others. And so, you know, I think working from these places where we, you know, maybe as artists or different practitioners have a deep de- desire to address, um, to address some of the, the root the root causes of the situation that we're in at the moment um, around Anthropocene or, or Capulocene. Um, for me, the question is always, well, how do you actually... How do you intervene in those forms of thinking? And one of the frameworks that I find particularly useful is, is comes from Danella Meadows, who was a systems thinker and theorist who talked about the many um, who talked about the many described leverage points to intervene in complex systems. And for her, there's sort of a, a series of t- tiered points of intervention which start with uh, the most easiest interventions, which are actually things like policy and uh, uh, change in legislation. But these easier to uh, achieve uh, interventions, she also says, have the least leverage in transforming a system. And the the leverage point that she describes as having the most leverage, but being the most challenging and difficult to affect, so it's a challenge, (laughs) is the one of transcending paradigms. So how can we transcend the paradigms that uh, we exist within, which is a challenge, you know, it, it, how, do you, how do you begin to change the things that not only constitute you, but you also co-constitute through your very participation in a system? So I don't know if I've answered that question very directly.
1: <laughs> As I said, no wrong answers. <laughs> But I think you raised a really interesting point, which is about change. Uh, And obviously, over the last two years, we've all become very well-schooled in change and instability, and I think also um, getting comfortable with the destabilization of some of those myths of a Euro-Western or colonial capitalist model, which suggests that as humans, we are dominant and have some sort of control over what's happening, when in fact, of course, we're always being shaped by and shaping the worlds around us. Um, And one of the reasons I was interested in in gathering everyone for this conversation is thinking about being in this state of constant change and a demand for adaptation, Um, having been in close relationships with other sorts of beings outside of human and human-centred industries and and modes of thinking. I think you all have very particular approaches and and perhaps insights into change and um, adaptability. Wow, I forgot what the word was. Very impressive. Um, and Zoe, I'm really interested, um, you and I had a brief chat last week uh, and uh, and Zoe mentioned to me um, that they had shifted their practice on returning to Australia um, on some of these reflections that we've touched on around colonisation. And I'm interested to hear what it is that you've been doing, having shifted, um, having changed based on those conditions.
0: <laughs> Can you tell us about that? Um it's still. I'm still very much in a, a deep process. I've moved out to Castlemaine. Um, I from overseas. I came back in a rush uh, when the borders were shutting in early March last year. And um, it's the first time I've lived in a, in a um, more regional context. Uh, and, I mean, I went overseas because of certain impasses and obstacles that I were becoming more and more aware of on many levels also around thinking about the unsustainability of uh, individualistic artistic practice and Western artistic models um, and um, thinking, wanting to think more about the deep learning that I wanted to do and I need to do uh, and wanting to create conditions with others to hold forms of collective learning and unlearning. Um, and so I guess in that sp- space, I've been thinking much more about different methodologies and processes as well as structures and frameworks that can hold the deep thinking and learning that needs to happen in order for deeper cultural um, and systemic change that can sort of lead to different ways of collectivising or thinking about, yeah, um, tricky questions that sometimes don't have answers um, but that require sitting with and spending time with and and time being a luxury, especially living in the city. I feel so lucky my rent at the moment is ridiculously cheap. So I've been really privileged in the sense that I've been able to... um, spend a lot of deep time thinking, (laughs) getting stuck in my own thoughts, navel-gazing, but also with others who are in the area uh, working in similar ways to start building up relations and also just being really present to who and what is in this area and these unceded lands on this Jarrah country there, which has, um, you know, it's old gold rush country. um, So the the, uh, violence... Of, of the extractive mentality of colonial capitalist systems is very present. The wounds are very present on the surface. You've still got, you know, the whole land is, you know, undergone deep regenerative work in some ways and a lot of care from a lot of land care groups and local traditional um, custodians. And um, But there's, there's still, it's very visible. The history, you can't ignore it in the same way that you can in the city. So being present with this all the time, it's... Um, yeah, I've been really trying to, also in these times of COVID and so much world uncertainty as well as personal uncertainty really honour the not knowing and um, the obstacles and not trying to continue with making work as usual but thinking more about, um, yeah, the, the potential for art as, a, as you know, providing tools uh, and awarenesses, sensitivities um, and embodiments as well to critical dialogues around uh, reflecting on it where we are and, and uh, what needs to happen and also, you know, very much as well thinking in this place of, um, yeah, how to support First Nations people um, and, and sort of really learning and listening from those who are really on the front lines and doing the work and thinking, yeah, about what needs to shift to be able to be more of a, internally to be more of an ally and, and an accomplice um, in this space as a non-Indigenous person.
1: I feel like even even inside of that reflection and process, I can see the sorts of ripples of of long geolo- geologic reflections as well. The the um, taking of time and and space and moving at a much slower pace um, has that featured in your shift in methodologies? I guess um, in recent times. Uh, it was a fake question. It's fair to not know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, well,
0: I will say. Is I'm not too sure of what the question is exactly, but hmm. I think um, I can
1: rephrase it okay. into an actual question. Okay, let's try. Has the work that you've done mm. with working particularly with stones and I would say like large geologic bodies
3: mm.
1: been something that has informed or changed what's happened for you in the last little while in thinking about how you reapproach mm. work in this new context?
0: I mean, I still very much use the geological as a metaphor, uh, as amongst other terms, as a way to th- think around complex ideas and give them images in my brain, such as the obstacle, or the, you know, the, the rock that gets in the way um, of progress. Or, um, uh, yeah, I've all been doing deep personal reflection and, and, and opening up myself as well to change or to understand certain habits. Um, to do also with my personal upbringing, thinking as well around place-based practices and sort of the universalizing tendencies that I had before as someone whose parents moved to Australia not long before I was born and being an only child and not having that sort of sense of family or belonging. I think through my art practice, um, you know, a lot of that has been driven by a sense of building community and building a sense of belonging. And so that took a sort of planetary Um, approach previously, but now in this sort of awkward space, um, it's been very much that shifting to, okay, what is, you know, the the complexity of belonging on unceded lands or like the notion of belonging, which of course on the one hand is so integral um, to to our species in different ways, but how to um, navigate these contradictions and be really present to the particularities of place and, and a commitment and building a relationship with place. So there's a. I don't quite know what that looks like because it still feels like these are slow processes and building up relationships take time and not just sort of entering a place and be like I'm going to do a project, I'm going to start a thing, but just um yeah volunteering with different organisations, taking time just to meet people and to reflect and yeah do deeper inner work as well.
1: Yeah, and slowly build up relation. Mm. Yeah, that's it's um beautiful. Thank you, Zoe. Mm. It's um. Just made me wonder, actually, about you, like, and, and, um, and the recent works that you've done around engaging the, the giant cuttlefish in South Australia. I'm aware that your work takes you to so many different landscapes and you work yep. across East, um, East Gippsland as well with the float residency. Uh, and I'm wondering about those sort of mycelial networks of relation and, and mm-hmm. how you go about building those over time with so many different places and species.
3: Um. I was thinking about the cuttlefish when you were talking before and how wonderful they've been to kind of learn from about adaptation. But um, going back a step to sort of how my practice has changed in relation to COVID and adjacent to COVID, before I did the cuttlefish trip, I was doing. Residencies internationally, and then after doing the first cuttlefish residency, I realized how um, how much possibility and how incredibly wonderful this you know landscape and this underwater world was that. Um, Australia had to offer and so I was starting to kind of narrow down my focus. I was like, I can't do these international travelling residencies and do the ecological work um, at that great distance. It just didn't feel right using up the carbon miles and also just um, doing them more locally made it more accessible for my communities to access them. So interstate seemed quite reasonable at the time even though it was still a 17-hour road trip. Um but then I started working with float, and so I feel like in the last few years, my focus has just been kind of narrowing in. And then with COVID, it just narrowed right down to the you know immediate five kilometers of where I was living. So I got the benefit of the, the Yarra on it or the Mary on a daily basis and then sort of expanding out into the Yarra and. Um, and I really think that there's a lot to be said for working closer to home and how much can be done, how much oops, needs to be done in our own backyards. I think the um, the emergence of the phrase hyper-local getting used yep. a lot is, is really valuable.
1: And, and Luke, it's one of the things that I think is so fantastic about getting people to engage with literally the other um, species that are living inside the house with them. So we have this sense, I guess, under a colonial model as well, that wilderness is something out there, ecology is something out there, and we ignore those that are inhabiting our bodies and and homes as well.
3: And it was a survival technique as well for me to be able to go, you know, isn't it amazing what's in my own 5K zone? Because a large part of me was rankling at this restrictive kind of (laughs) limitation. But, you know, to just keep zooming in, you know, like you were talking about in your own house on the, you know, whether it was the dust or the, the different things that were going on within the plumbing. And, um, yeah, I, we had some really rich experiences down by the creek and I definitely walked and ridden and traversed that path many times but never fully appreciated it until COVID times and since have been doing, like, river cleanups and... Um, kayak orchestras and just finding ways to be in that waterway more often and um, yeah but okay so taking a step back to the cuttlefish <laughs> oh my god the cuttlefish are supposedly like incredible at adaptation and so I think of them as like tricks they have this huge bag of sort of performative, tricks but it's all about adapting to their um conditions and apparently the reason that they have this huge like sort of bag of tricks is because they've got such short lifespans and it's been shown that through different um eons of times that they've proliferated in um in climate change moments so um i think that is really interesting kind of Thing to learn from them, that their, their sort of short life, um, their vulnerability, they've twisted it to their advantage and they've created, like, this queer underwater light show that is, yeah... It's definitely impressive.
1: Do you feel that's something that's emerged in your own practice as well as a
3: result? It was that already there, there and then I was back? drawn to this cut of fish yeah. because I was like, hang on a minute, you guys are like the, the mollusk version of me and I'm into it. <laughs> they are
1: pretty spectacular.
3: Yeah. It's true. <laughs> I mean, I'm maybe not as flashy, but I can put on a show.
1: <laughs> and in terms of um, adaptation, Luke, uh, what did you discover from the pot plants in your house?
2: Um, I this thing that happens in our in in our, my relationship with them and and our relationship together is uh too much I, I'm sure a lot of people could relate to this too much love is not good you know it's they were like go away like get away from me and um if a if a if one of them is not doing so great, you know, you kind of move them around and things like that. But one, if one of them is not doing so great, I would kind of put them in triage and just be like, there is a zone that I'm not allowed to go in actually and that's for them and I'm just going to leave them, going to let them be. And, and sure enough, like less interference from me, um, they would thrive, of course. Um, and they would come back and they would sort of find their way. And so this this, um, the way that kind of seeped into my body was just don't mess with things too much, you know, like just let things be, spend the time, take the time to notice what's available, like notice what resources are actually available to you in any given moment, like where you are is where you need to be and use use what's there and... That's not necessarily like a, oh, it's beautiful, you know, because there's no emotion around that. It's kind of, you know, there's something kind of violent about it as well too. Like things consume other things. Things like um, take over other things. I had a plant, like kill another plant, you know, like stuff like that. And it's like, oh, it's it's quite startling. I'm
1: sorry. You had a plant kill another plant? Yeah, yeah. I like... But
2: co- we hear about that. Yeah, I like, kind of co- I, 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 I like to co-plant a little bit, you know, and like... Um, you know that plants like to be with each other. They help each other, but sometimes they help each other too much. You know, <laughs> like they they give their life over to the other, and that you know, you're talking about the mycelial network before, and like how it, it, you know mushrooms are having a moment right now, aren't they? And they really are. And like how I, I love the the process. Uh, what decay is in that process? Like we 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 don't. Um, you know, we're scared of death. So, like, we try not to think about, we don't bring that into the conversation as much. We, we try to hide, you know, humans put, put death away from us, typically. And um, I, I, I love this idea of decay being, like, uh, intimate with decay mm. and welcoming decay as a productive process, as a creative process. Um, so, in my... Darkest moments in these last two years, and there were many. Um, like to welcome that, um, and not to be like to it helped me like to be to see what was going and witness going on what was going on in my little micro um, ecology, my little micro universe. So uh, it helped me get out of my future broadcasting and. Um, be in the return to my body and return to the immediate um, processes that were happening around me to be more like a plant and um, to grow my body like a plant. And the artwork that we've been making, like now we think about, like Zoe, you were talking before about really reassessing. Um, you know, in arts practice and independent arts practice. And um, we were talking about this on the phone. Like, I, I, I was a touring artist. Like, that was, that's what you could do to survive. You know, you do gigs, you travel. Um, and that, has, a deep sickening kind of thing has been growing for a long time. Every time I stepped on a plane of like, what on earth is this about? Like, why are we doing this? And so this, this great halt um, helped it's uh, really helped kind of it's an opportunity to go okay what if we Daniel and I talk about the hundreds and thousands project like this is not our project anymore this is a collective project this is a networked project many people are many artists are making work in this way about these things what if what if it exists in a conversation as opposed to the artist's genius and this belongs to us and we're going to author it and we're going to own it and sell it you know like um what if we grow this project like a plant? What if the art can grow like a plant?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's challenging, isn't it, making work in these spaces because we are operating inside of an industry grown inside of a paradigm which is causing the problems that we're trying to solve through the work. And I think this um, reckoning with what the art itself is and the form that it takes and the destabilising of that and like you say, thinking vegetally is such a, a fantastic invitation offered to us by worlds outside of the human and, and the acknowledgement that letting things go and letting things rot and decompose is, is one of the greatest things we can do in order to, to nourish other things. We're coming up towards the the end of our time, which has just flown by, but Anna, I just wanted to put you on the spot as a, a futures practitioner and ask you particularly in the spaces of um, multi-species equity in futures, what do you think? And I know we haven't talked about this, which is fantastic because there's so few things we haven't talked about. <laughs> What's something that we need to let go of in Australia? Oh, this is a great question. And I'm um, gonna hmm. have you to frame think
4: the same about, about and I that have particular
1: a, one. <laughs> do you want to think about it and I'll come back to you? No,
4: no, it's all good. I think from my perspective, so okay, so speaking from the perspective as a future's practitioner, um, one of the things that I've really um, been tried to work work with in my practice is to really try and find ways to work outside the anthropocentrism that often lies at the heart of ways that we think about uh, how a future might unfold, or we could talk about how change change might occur or transformative change. So, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about. Multi-species agency and and how worlds are created and co-created with others, and if we're thinking about you know moving to more kind of complex ways of thinking about our belonging in the world, and how um, how we both contribute to change, whether it's as, as humans or um, co co-participate or participate in the uh, in complex change processes along with other species, um, with other beings, living or non-living. Um, then how do we actually? Yeah, what are the kind of practices, um, and what are the not just the frameworks, but what are the kind of practices that we can uh, begin exploring that they can help us to actually bring that into um, you know our daily lives, our daily practice can transform the ways in which we do things, whether it's in work or whether it's as art practitioners uh, or whether it's how we think about equity of, of other species in the future space. Um, I think it's just just I guess speaking briefly, I think it's sort of Representative of a certain, like, oubree or arrogance to think that only humans create change. Um, but it's also very challenging to think of how we include, let's just say, voices, Voices, for instance, we often talk about voice, the voices of others, um, particularly when, um, like, voicing and vocality is, is a particularly human thing in terms of when we think about things like language. But I guess we've touched on a little bit here as well, and I think one of the things that's exciting to hear about all of all the practices taking place on this panel is, I think you know we've mentioned things like listening and things like embodiment um, and finding different ways to also coexist and be with. I think I feel like a key to thinking about multi-species equity in terms of the future is how we can cultivate those practices, um, cultivate uh, ways to listen more attentively, uh, cultivate ways to listen to our own bodies. Um, in relationship to those we, that are around us. Um, and I think it's a really important conversation to have. I, I think there's sometimes pressure when we're thinking about, um, so we've had COP26 recently, and obviously there's a lot of important people in rooms having important conversations. Uh, it might seem perhaps uh, a little irrelevant or not so urgent uh, for the work of artists like yourselves to be um, really thinking about your relationships to place or thinking about consent, uh, the consent in terms of your engagements with other beings. But I feel that this is actually really essential work and really important work. And if more of us, not just artists, but if more of us can kind of think deeply and and try and uh, question and, and explore our own practices and relationships, then on some ways I feel like, you know, this is where interesting work can happen at the edges as well.
1: And this is something we have talked a little bit about. Um, what do you think the role of hope is in futuring with more than human worlds? Hope is so important.
4: <laughs> and
1: hope can is be it? hard to
4: find. Yes. <laughs> Hope's a big thing in futures practice and we talk about it a lot. Um, I think hope, there's, there are differences between hope and optimism and I think they're really important dif- differences to flesh out. But I think that you can maintain hope while uh, looking squarely in the face of uh, the particular crises that we're looking through. And it's, it's it's essential, although hope can be hard to cultivate at times, it's essential that we find ways to nurture hope and find ways to cultivate hope within us and within those around us. Um, hope is, for me, is the energy that gives rise to uh, possibility. It's the energy that gives rise to uh even a brave step which may feel futile to go in the direction of, to go in an opposite direction to where the, a broad sweeping trend or uh, where a future might look like it might be having. And, and I guess coming back to this idea of colonization of the future as well, you know, we talk a lot about as for futures as, as you know, the future is in some ways, you can sometimes talk about it as, as, a, as a construct or an imaginary, it, 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 never, it never quite arrives but it does shift the way that we respond in any given emerging present. And to maintain, I guess, a sense of hope is also a way, I think, to also question as well any colonising any of a future that we might find ourselves encountering. Um, it's, it's the, it, I think it's holding a space for the possibility of something else. Yeah,
1: thank you, Anna. And, and Zoe, in your work, um how do you what do you hope for? This is a great question, so open. Should we narrow it down coming out of COVID oh, yeah. in your practice? What do you hope for? well wasn't it any narrower uh, The first thing that comes to mind
0: is um, community like critical communities um, and holding space um, and creating conditions um for joy and love and uncertainty um, and complexity and contradiction to exist and to be able to be vulnerable with others and hold spaces, um, to be vulnerable together, to go into murky terrain and have fun and play and um, have pleasure in that space as well. Um, But, yeah, this thing of, I guess, emergent cultures or emergent futures um, is something I'm thinking a lot around in terms of, yeah creating conditions and seeing what comes through that and from that um, by bringing people together. And so that's where I get my hope is a sort of, I guess, more collective consciousness and understanding or finding ways to move together within all of our differences. Um, Yeah. Flocking together. Flocking together. Yeah. Yeah, Friends, friends.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And lovers.
0: Lovers are good too. Yes,
1: pleasure all the time. (laughs) Moving with joy and pleasure. Maybe Uh, some dogs and cats around as well. Yeah. Friends of all scales, and leg numbers, within a degree. Uh, Recently discovered I had a funnel web living in my bedroom. Anyway, um, Luke, that's reminded me about our conversation just before we began, and I'd love to um, wind up. I'm gonna ask both of you different things and like, and I'm so sorry, I'm gonna get you at the end with something different from everyone else. But I'm wondering, Amar, you were just saying, what was it you've just started reading? Pleasure Activism and thinking about the lineage of of your work through the spaces of, um, yeah, pleasure and and kink and consent and and queer spaces, Um, how has that, I guess, the framing of care informed what you hope for?
2: You're really (laughs) so cruel, aren't I? Um...
1: Do you want me to come back to you?
3: Yeah, that'd be, that'd be great.
1: Oh, like, and I'm so and
3: sorry. Think about sorry. mine and then throw back to you. No, it's not going to work. You're just, you're just going to have to answer. And it's completely different. Are you ready? I think so. Okay. I don't know how well I've done so far. I'm coming Is off there... the back of an all-day other conference. So feeling I a know, little bit all, slower th- than really? normal. I'm sorry. You've had everybody. to do so much talking. <laughs> oh,
1: thanks. <laughs> Front row loves it. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if there's anything that you're interested in unlearning in 2022. So many curly questions. You want to throw it back to Um, (laughs) Lou? Yes, but I'll
3: attempt it. Um, I guess some practical ones. Um, Consumption, I guess, is something that I would like to lessen, lessen out to as minimal as possible, not... Fernie Marie Kondo vibe so much as just survival, the necessity of survival. Um, And, um, yeah, it's coming up a bit at the moment through uh, a big studio move after 10 years of... Not that we bought everything that was in there. There was a lot of sort of gathering of things from all different places, but now that weight of things, I guess, is like, yeah, making me realise that consumption is like at the heart of a lot of our problems and that, um, yeah, we need to lessen our expectations. COVID's taught me to lessen my expectations around a lot of things um, and I'm, I am think I'm mostly okay with that. It's, you know, it's made me... Uh, less aspirational. It's made me want to slow down. So, yeah, there's a few things there.
1: It's been a pretty heavy-handed collaboration, the one with COVID, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Top down. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And with that, Luke, I'm so sorry to have opened and to be closing with you and with Curly Questions. I mean, thanks for the
2: opportunity. Thank you so much. Think about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's terrible when you, like... You have a moment, and I wanted to listen to you then, but I was like thinking, thinking, <laughs> yeah. thinking. So sorry. Uh, that's okay. Yeah, I caught a bit of it. Um, oh, it's horrible when when that's not listening. Um, like, I, I, um, I wonder. Like, I'm aware that there are words or terms in different cultures, and languages that talk about. Um, The energy, or the relationship, the relation between you and another, um, or you and a a, whether that other is human or not, and it's it's not it's not about the the word is the word says to just sort of about the energy between or the the you and it, Um, and I feel like we don't have that word. I I don't feel like it. It's I'm always grasping for it. and when I th- like, I would I I, th- I would love us to attend to that, the absence of that word, um, and so when I think about care, I don't think I don't necessarily think about that is care. Um, like uh, when I think about care, I think I think about responsibility, and I think about the responsibility for. Um, to listen but to show up Um, and that it's not, it's also in my showing up I have to understand that the other can't necessarily show up in a way that's visible, immediately visible to me and so it's also my responsibility to find a way to tune into that Um, I don't know where I'm going with this by the way Uh, and yeah, that's all
1: I was going to say, do you want me to add another piece back to the end of that? Sure, why not? Now I'm thinking.
2: Showing up, showing up for ourselves, showing up for the other, but showing up for the relation.
1: And does, has that
2: That we don't necessarily your... understand how to relate to yet.
1: Is that something that, you ho- that you're hoping for in your own practice? To find, to find more consistency or certainty in, in that space? Finding that
2: word... Yeah, to enter, the to enter into of that further. Mm. And I really, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know yet. Like, I, I don't know enough yet. And I need, to, I need to learn way more, way more. And it's not, if we're talking about paradigms, it is not in my, par- they're, they're, it's a very limited paradigm that I'm um, experiencing through. And that, yeah, that needs to be cracked open.
1: I mean, they're absolutely right. And um, it reminds me obviously of um, Donna Haraway's statement about leaving the edges open to to uncertainty, being able to tell stories that are wide enough to gather everything up, but also leave the edges open. And I think leaving the edges open, we've come to the end of the time for our panel. And obviously there's so much more that we have to to learn and, and talk about the world's beyond the human. And I'd like to thank you all for, first of all, also doing the work that you do, working in these murky spaces of uncertainty and consistently questioning and decentering ourselves or attempting to as as artists is not easy work. And thank you so much for joining me, Luke, Lycan, Zoe, Anna. Thank you for trusting me. Thank you. you. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Um, And thank you all for joining us in this chilly, strange evening in this stunning pavilion. And I hope you all enjoy the rest of your week and lives (laughs) and go home to all of the myriad things that occupy your houses and contemplate their presence. That is my hope for you all. (laughs) Thanks, everyone.
0: You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.